Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Stephanie Barclay, Associate Professor of Law at the Brigham Young University J. Reuben Clark Law School. We will discuss her article, First Amendment Categories of Harm, which will be published in the Indiana Law Journal. So welcome to the to the podcast, Stephanie. Thanks so much for having me, Brian. It's great to be on. No, my, the pleasure's all mine. I was so happy when I came across your paper because I, I just think it's it's fascinating and timely. I and mean, you're not only talking about uh, a question that's on a lot of people's minds right now, but also doing it, I think, in a really kind of sophisticated theoretical way that I actually found really helpful in in kind of conceptualizing what what the real problem problem is. So, congrats on the awesome paper. Oh, thank you. It's it's kind of funny to think that harm is fun to think about, but it, it has been fun for me to think about too. So I appreciate that. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Well, so I thought maybe we could kind of start with a, a kind of a, a more general description of the problem that you're addressing. So, so for listeners who may not be kind of as familiar with the philosophy of law and jurisprudence. What is a theory of harm, and why do theories of harm matter to government action, or why might we think they would matter to government action? Yeah, this is a long-standing discussion. One of the early philosophers who paid a lot of attention to this was John Stuart Mill, and he famously argued that the only purpose for which power can be rightfully exercised over any member of a civilized community against his will is to prevent harm to others, this this do-no-harm principle. And he was saying that harm is a necessary condition to justify government getting involved in people's private affairs. Uh, he didn't say it was sufficient. He said sometimes other characteristics would be required too, but it was at least necessary. And, and this is really an idea that dominates a lot of the sort of received wisdom about government policy and 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 a lot of thinking about rights in general. You know, you have the right to swing your fist as long as it doesn't hit my nose. And, um, you know, that's harm seems to be a, a way that a lot of people try to draw lines as far as when government action is appropriate or not, or when someone exercising their rights is appropriate or it's not. So when we talk about harm, what do we mean? I mean, what counts as a harm? How do we know whether something is a harm or not? Sort of how do we decide, you know, what to put in that category and what not to? Well, that is the really interesting question, I think, that a a lot of philosophers have debated about. And um, the philosopher um, Joseph Raz pointed out that harm entails by its very meaning that the action is wrong. It's a normative concept that really acquires its specific meaning from the moral theory within which it's embedded. But if it's not connected to a moral theory, then, then the harm principle is basically it's an empty vessel. It's a, it's a formal principle lacking any sort of concrete content that doesn't lead you to clear policy conclusions. And so other scholars like Professor Stephen Smith have talked about different ways in which we conceive of what harm means. You could think of it in sort of the, a subjective utilitarian context of harm is whatever people think it is. If you feel harmed, then you are. Uh, and that's not a crazy idea. Certainly there's a lots of ways in which that that subjective definition might uh, make sense. But the problem, if that is the definition that we use, is then that means that 
harm can be anything. And so if that is used as a, a policy line, then it's really unpredictable. And if it's used as a government uh, policy justification, then government could be justified anytime somebody subjectively believes harm that has happened. And so what mm. uh, what often happens is that people start to use harm not in a broad subjective sense, but as a term of art in a technical sense when they start to say harm harm means these things, but not these types of things. And they sort of categorize and draw lines as which type of harm counts. But then, uh, then what looks like a simplistic principle is now operating on top of a really deep moral theory where you have to justify, well, why do those harms count and, and why don't those? Right. So, so if I understand what you're saying correctly, it's like we could adopt a kind of subjectivist utilitarian approach to defining harm, but then as a consequence, it no longer can do any work as a limiting principle. Right. And as soon as we try to make it into a limiting principle, then we're importing whatever kind of normative priors we're using to define in or out of the category, certain kinds of experiences. Yeah, I think that's a good way to summarize it. If you're if you want it to be a limiting principle and so then you start to define harm to mean a really technical set of things and exclude other things, then yes, you're now pouring into this term a moral theory whether you're being explicit about it or not. Okay. So you mentioned earlier that Mill in talking about the concept of harm and how it might be used to conceptualize the legitimacy of government action, distinguish between kind of necessary and sufficient uh, for justifying government action, like whether a particular harm would be necessary versus sufficient. I was wondering if you could expand on that distinction a little bit, because I think it's a useful one, or I found it useful in kind of understanding the work that the concept of harm was doing in different theories of the justification of government action. Yeah, I think this is an interesting distinction too. So what Mill and what some harm theorists have said is that if harm exists, then that means that the government could conceivably have a justification for restricting whatever action it is that's causing that harm. But John Stuart Mill said that doesn't necessarily mean that the government must get involved. Uh, there, there might be other considerations at play, but the government could now. Um, but there are other people focused on harm, and, and we can talk about some of this specifically in the religious context if you want. But just generally speaking, there are others focused on harm who say that if an action is causing harm, then essentially the government must get involved. Uh, now, government action prohibiting that harm is required. And at that point, I think the stakes for defining what do we mean when we're talking about harm are a lot higher because because we're no longer also relying on other potential considerations as well, like John Stuart Mill may have been now harm is triggering a significant consequence. And so we ought to be pretty clear about what we mean when we're defining harm when, when those stakes are higher. So if I understand it correctly, then it, the idea is that if harm is a necessary condition for action, then the government can't act unless there's harm. If harm is a sufficient condition for action, then the government can act if there's harm, but it isn't required to. And then you're saying there's a kind of a third category, almost like an obligatory category, where if there's harm, then the government is obligated to act, required to act, uh, and doesn't have the choice not to? 
Yeah, you summarized it much more clearly than I explained it. So that was great. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no problem. No problem. Um, I'm glad that's so, recorded so I can go back and write down what you said. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 so as you suggested, I mean, let's move into the religious context because that's sort of the backdrop against which you describe, you know, how these different theories theories play out. So for listeners who might not be familiar with sort of how the Supreme Court and lower courts have dealt with these issues in a in a religious liberties, religious exemptions context, sort of historically, how have courts thought about harm in relation to, you know, religion? I think harm has always been an important consideration, uh, often looking at harm on both sides of the scale. So, Thinking about if if we don't protect the religious individual, what sort of harm is going to be at stake for that individual or group uh, for potentially violating their conscience? And what might other downstream externalities be at stake? Uh, for example, if there's a religious organization that that has to close if their religious beliefs, if they're not able to operate consistent with their religious beliefs. But there's also definitely uh, the very real countervailing harm that courts are cognizant of on the other side of the scale. And that is, if if we protect religious individuals, what sort of harm or cost is that going to result in for society? And are there going to be ways in which that harm might be experienced disproportionately by other individuals? And are there things that government can do to both protect religion and mitigate some of those harms? So th- those are sort of abstract ways of describing it, but that's often the sorts of uh, questions that courts are asking and grappling with when they're looking at these different sorts of uh, competing harms. A really interesting dichotomy there in a sense that like there are some circumstances in which the government can't act and other circumstances in which the government arguably can't not act, it seems like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that is an interesting dichotomy. Yeah, yeah. So... So in your paper, you talk about some new theories that people have been generating around sort of how to think about the nature of harm in relation to government action in a religious context. Sort of why are these questions coming to the fore now? Uh, and sort of what theories are people proposing or how are, how are people proposing to think about harm? in this context, other than you? <laughs> yeah, this is, there's a really interesting scholarly conversation going on about this issue. And there's a lot of thoughtful scholars that are advancing this pressing question of how, how should we think about harm in this religious context? I think it's being spurred in large part because of hotly debated cases like Hobby Lobby or Masterpiece Cake Shop, where harm to third parties is is very much part of the discussion with those cases. And Hobby Lobby, the concern raised by scholars is what about the, the rights of women who are employees of the company who want to have access to contraception? What about harms that they may experience? And in Masterpiece Cake Shop, of course, the harm is dealing with the gay couple who wanted to be able to purchase the cake and and weren't able to do so from a baker because of his religious convictions. And so some of the third-party harm theories that are being advanced now are are trying to give more more of a specific idea of, of what we should think of when we think of harm and and how that should limit protections for religious individuals. 
So uh, some versions of the third-party harm theory are rooted in the establishment clause. And what the scholars are essentially arguing is that if a religious exemption, meaning government lifting some requirement that is burdening a religious individual. Uh, so if such an exemption causes harm to third parties with a specific definition they'll offer, and I'll talk about later, then the establishment clause prohibits that sort of government action. And so a reverse way of saying that is if uh, harm to third parties under their definition is caused, then the establishment requires the government to, to not lift the burden on the religious individual, but in fact, to, to continue that burden on the religious individual so as not to cause harm for those third parties. And then there are other scholars who don't root the, their theory in the establishment clause. They just sort of root it more generally in religious liberty considerations and also concerns about dignitary harm in particular that might befall third parties in, in conflicts dealing with things like contraception or, or same-sex conflicts between religious traditional beliefs about marriage. Mm-hmm. So in relation to those theories and sort of how the government should think about the legitimacy of providing a religious exemption in a particular circumstance, sort of how are some of those scholars defining the concept of harm. In other words, how are they distinguishing between what counts as a harm and what doesn't count as a harm? Because it seems like that's really critical to kind of operationalizing, as it were, any theory of that kind. I agree, especially where essentially what the scholars are now doing is, as we discussed before, they're using harm in in a technical sense as a term of art to mean something very specific. And so then you're right, then the definition and understanding that definition matters a lot. So professors Schwartzman, Tebe, and Schrager ha- are saying that the standard we should use for when harm is uh, sufficient, that it would require government to not protect religious rights, should borrow from the Title VII undue burden standard. And that, that standard has been described by some as meaning anything more than de minimis harm would be uh, sufficient. And so they say that we can look to Title VII case law and the way that that's been interpreted. And if any third party would experience that level, that undue burden level of harm, then at that point, government under the Establishment Clause should be prohibited from protecting the religious rights. Um, and Professor Geddix and his co-author, Rebecca Van Tassel, talk about using a materiality standard and uh, and a standard that would basically say if the harm is material, then then at that point that would sort of trigger the government restriction of religious rights. And um, professors Nijam and Siegel talk about whether there is a dignitary harm that's that's really falling on a targeted group of individuals. And and again, they don't base that theory uh, on the establishment clause. <clears throat> so those are the, some of the three different theories at issue. And what's been interesting to me is I've visited with these scholars who I, I have to emphasize are all very thoughtful. They're doing really nuanced, great work. And it's been a lot of fun to get to dialogue with them about these issues. They've been really generous um, in these conversations. But it's interesting to me that when I talk to them about sort of the different definitions of harm, they don't say, oh, yeah, like we're, we're basically talking about the same thing. Like they're using a different label, but it's the same. The reaction I get is, is usually the opposite. It's that, no, like we're 
we have a, a pretty different view of what the right standard for defining harm is and um, and putting some daylight between the other definitions, which mm-hmm. sort of sort of highlights for me the way that there is this uh, the plurality of views of what harm means. And in some ways, <clears throat> relying on harm, I think, is meant to try and overcome a plurality of views on lots of other moral questions. And it sort of seems like, well, harm is a shortcut. Like harm is a neutral way that we can avoid the plurality of views on other moral issues because harm just seems neutral and straightforward and simple. So we should all be able to agree on that. But when harm itself is composed of that pluralism that itself is trying to deal with, then it, it, it ends up not being a solution to that, that problem. Um, it's, it's still, resting on top of a deep moral theory that uh, people have different views about what counts as harm and what doesn't. And I think that's really interesting. Yeah. And it was what I found really compelling about one of the things, one of the many things I found really compelling about your paper was you pointed to some potential difficulties with some of these theories you just described. And it struck me that it, it seems as if the theories you describe are likely to provide results that might be appealing to, you know, many people in relation to the particular circumstances that they were designed to solve, but might, when generalized, produce results that might be uncomfortable or less appealing in in other circumstances, which might be a problem for them as general theories, as it were, of how we ought to think of harm in this context. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, that was a a great summary of another point I make in the article, which is that uh, all of these scholars who are talking about harm and and doing really great work in this space, they, they generally are pretty solicitous of religious protections if those protections would be for vulnerable religious minority groups. Uh, you know, they've said in different contexts, we want to prevent religious exemptions that cause harm, but we don't want to co- prevent harmless religious exemptions for for religious minorities. So they've, they've used Amish or um, Sikhs or Muslims as examples in different contexts and in different cases of the types of religious exemptions we should protect. And one thing that I focus on in this paper is to say, well, if you if you measure your theory against your own aims, and, and if we drill down on those cases, those are not, in fact, harmless religious exemptions. And they would probably have come out the opposite way if we were using your standard. And in fact, one case I think is particularly fun to really highlight that is a case called Tagore. And that was a case where there was a a Sikh woman who worked for the IRS and she wanted to bring in one of her articles of faith that Sikhs typically wear a kirpan, which is a dull blade. And um, the government said, no, you can't, you can't bring that into work. It could be dangerous. And, uh, you know, as part of litigation questions arose, like, well, wait a minute, you let people bring in, knives to, to cut birthday cakes or power tools or, or all sorts of much more dangerous things than my really dull blade that's an article of faith. Why why can't I just bring that in too your, uh, and have that be much safer than your giant kitchen knife? Um, and the interesting thing is that under that case, the, the court analyzed it both under the Title VII undue burden standard or the de minimis standard, some people call it, 
And they also analyzed it under the, the more heightened strict scrutiny standard of RIFRA that a lot of these scholars are criticizing. And under RIFRA, the court found that this uh, woman who's a member of a minority faith did have a claim and that there was enough evidence to suggest that the government didn't really have a good reason for burdening her religion. But under the Title VII standard, they said, eh, the government's met its burden of showing that it's probably at least de minimis. And so we think that she doesn't have a claim under that standard. And to me, that's an interesting contrast where a religious uh, minority would not receive the protection that I think these scholars think these sorts of religious minorities should receive if we're in fact relying on that sort of generalized harm principle more broadly. Right, right. So so you propose a kind of taxonomy of harms as a way of as a way of kind of helping us think through this problem in a more kind of programmatic way. And and you sort of identify four different categories of harm. So I wonder if you could talk about what those categories are and how they would work in the framework that you propose. Yeah. And just to give a little bit of a preface, this this is a framework where I'm attempting to describe the nuanced ways that courts are actually dealing with harm. Uh, Because I don't think that courts really are doing this thing where they, if they find a certain amount of harm, whether it's de minimis or whatever on one side of the scale, that they did then ignore the countervailing harm to the religious individuals and that they treat the de minimis harm as uh, a sufficient condition that then requires government action. I think that there's a lot more nuanced involved in the, the way courts are treating competing harms, particularly when you add different characteristics to that harm. So the first category I talk about is there are some things that when a harm is a particular type, courts treat it as essentially prohibited, meaning we just don't let that sort of harm occur. And whatever the reciprocal harm is on the other side of the scale, courts treat that as essentially inadmissible harm. Um, And then there's, and so these are often paired harms that go together and then the two other categories of, of paired harms where the ways in which courts oper- operate when they're analyzing harm is to what I call a presumptive harm, meaning we're going to say that this harm is presumptively prohibited or invalid. And then courts also assess relevant harm, which depends on its context and depends on the type of harm. But <clears throat> but it's relevant in the sense that that type of harm might end up rebutting the thumb on the scale against the other sort of presumptive harm. So that's all, that's all really abstract and confusing. Mm. Uh, but those are, with some examples, I think it might help flesh out those different categories of harm and the way that the court is is dealing with harms on both sides of the scale. Right, yeah. So maybe you could provide just an illustration of what that would look like, because I found that really helpful in sort of kind of conceptualizing what you're talking about and sort of how courts have in practice actually sort of looked at the question in a way that reflects the sort of framework that you're describing. Absolutely. So one example of a prohibited harm that arises in the religious context is if the government is trying to interfere with churches' decision about who they want to be the church's leaders. And the Supreme Court has said 
rooting its decision in both the free exercise clause and the establishment clause, that we just don't allow the government to engage in that sort of action. There's there's policy reasons you could make arguments about why courts do that. There's historical originalist arguments about that. But the bottom line is that the courts have said that that type of harm is off the table. But what that means is that the reciprocal harm for whoever the third parties are <clears throat> who wanted the government to get involved with church leadership, that harm is inadmissible. We just we just really don't put that harm on the scale to give it weight at all. And in Hosanna Tabor, an example of that is the, the third party at that case was a woman who was arguing that she had been wrongfully terminated from a leadership role in a, a church school and that she should be able to maintain that position. And that I'm, I'm certain that that was real harm for her and something that mattered a lot to her to be able to get that job. And so this isn't to diminish the subjective importance to her that outcome at all. But what the court said in that case is because we we just cannot allow the government to interfere with church leadership this way, because that's a, that's an action that is flatly prohibited, then your harm on the opposite side of the scale can't be given weight. And so that's how those first two categories, I think, operate. That's an example of that. Mm-hmm. And, and what about the other two? Like, how how would that how would that differ from the example you just described like how would how how do courts do the weighing on the opposite side of the scale as it were mhm so and with the other two there are certain government actions that whether it's for constitutional reasons or statutory reasons if the government engages in that action then we've we now put a, a thumb on the scale that what the government did is presumptively prohibited. Not not necessarily like in the Hosanna Tabor context, but it's presumptively going to be prohibited. The government can then rebut that presumption. And the, one of the ways the government can do that is by pointing to other sorts of harm that the government's trying to avoid. So an example in this case is uh, under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act statute. Uh, so that statutory framework, if the government substantially burdens someone's religious beliefs, then uh, and and one, one sister statute, really quick, I'll say in this context, is also ARLUPA, um, which operates in the prison context. So one, one case that I'll, I'll give here is the context of a Muslim prisoner in Holt v. Hobbs who requested an accommodation for a half-inch beard for his religious beliefs. And the government denied that, and he was subject to potential penalties in the prison for for requesting this religious accommodation. And the way the statute then works is, uh, and the way some constitutional frameworks work too, is then the government is sort of presumptively prohibited from doing that, from doing in something that's burdening and sincere religious belief. And then we ask, well, can the government rebut that presumption? Can the government adequately raise evidence of other sorts of relevant countervailing harms on the other side of the case? And in this case, the government tried I was actually sitting in oral argument uh, for this particular case, and the government had made claims that if you let prisoners have a religious half-inch beard, they might hide weapons in their beard, they might uh, smuggle contraband, they might do things with those weapons or contraband to harm prison guards or other inmates. The government was trying really hard to say this could be a life-or-death situation. And Justice Alito, I still remember, said, couldn't you just have the prisoner 
comb his beard or something. So all the small revolvers will just fall out. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it was really hard for the government with a straight face to to answer that question. And the Supreme Court ended up unanimously ruling for the prisoner, not because there wasn't potential harm on the other side of the scale, but number one, the government hadn't adequately proved it, which uh, this framework requires them to do. And number two, the government, one thing that was fatal for their argument in that case is they would let prisoners have beards for medical reasons. And so the court could say, look, whatever harm you think is really at issue with beards, it must not be a big enough harm for you to actually, in an even-handed way, prohibit beards. And so if if you're not that worried about harm for medical beards, then you can't suddenly be super worried about that harm for religious beards. That's a double standard. And we're going to say that you you failed to rebut that uh, presumption in favor of not being able to harm the prisoner's religious beliefs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I, I can't help but th- like reading your paper and listening to you talk about this problem, right? I mean, it seems to me like in a lot of ways, religious liberties and religious exemptions are really just two different ways of describing the same thing. And the real question is how we categorize and weigh the harms. Am I missing something or, or is that is is that do you think a plausible way of looking at the circumstance? You're absolutely right that when I'm talking about religious interests or religious rights or religious exemptions, sometimes I'm using those things interchangeably. Religious exemptions are one of multiple ways that government can operate to to protect religious individuals. It's not the only way that you know we ensure religious liberty in our country, but that's one of the things that government can do now and has historically done. And there's an interesting debate on the horizon that uh, the Supreme Court really recently signaled it's interested in. And and that is, should it constitutionally change the framework to make it more protective of religious folks when it comes to religious exemptions um, in a way that might get closer to the existing statutory framework we have right now under statutes like the Religious Freedom Restoration Act? Mm-hmm. I mean, it seems like under the framework you describe that a lot of work is happening in terms of how the courts decide to define the nature of the harm in question. So like, is there currently like a principled way in which they're deciding what category to put different kinds of harms into? Um, and sort of, if so, how are they going about doing that and how does it track on to sort of some of the potential like the existing kind of controversies and and problems going forward yeah that's a really interesting question one that i don't totally um resolve in in this paper that i think for the harms that they treat is sort of categorically off the table it seems to be maybe a couple things going on one there might be more pressing historical concerns about that harm or just more obvious historical examples of that particular harm being sort of part of the original redistribution of rights that was key to why the founders wanted to create some of these protections to begin with. Um, I'm not sure that that's the only explanation, but it's it's one potential way to think about that. Um, Professors Holmes and Sunstein in their book, Cost of Rights, talk about how it, it it helps sometimes to think about the anatomy of a right, what sort of interests were things that you could balance and what things were interests that were taken 
off the table for purposes of balancing because they were sort of so critical to the anatomy of the right. And another example that uh, they provide and that I talk about in my paper is in the free speech context. That's sort of how we think about the harm of offending somebody. It's not that that harm doesn't matter or it's not real for that person, but it, it was just so integral to the anatomy of having free speech protections. You, like they, they can't coexist being able to prevent people from never getting offended and be able to protect people's freedom of speech that we treat that particular harm as inadmissible. It's just off the table for consideration. We don't give it any weight uh, when we're balancing different sorts of harm. Um, mm. And part of the reason I brought up the taxonomy of harms in this paper is not necessarily to say that I think that the courts are perfectly getting it right in every instance right now, but to draw attention to the fact that courts are actually doing pretty nuanced, careful work in trying to think about how to deal with competing harms. Because some of the the third-party harm theories we were discussing earlier really, to me, seem to only be fixated with harm on one side of the ledger. And uh, when you broaden your perspective and, and when descriptively you're aware of the way that courts are, in fact, dealing with nuanced competing harms on both sides, then I think that that sort of frees us to ask some more really interesting normative questions about how we should be thinking about harm and the sorts of legal frameworks that we should probably be trying to advance or protect in order to, <clears throat> to have the most normatively justifiable outcomes for harm on both sides of the scale. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so in 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 closing, Stephanie, I mean, I, I really felt like your paper helped me sort of see how this taxonomy sort of clarifies the nature of the normative questions that are ultimately at stake and ultimately provoking dispute. Do you think it can also help sort of enable a resolution? of those normative disputes or is that sort of another question entirely in other words does can the clarity help get us toward sort of compromise or will do you think it'll just sort of kind of illuminate why compromise is going to be so difficult i think that focusing on normative questions that recognize harm on both sides of the scale can help clarify the type of questions that we should be asking and that we should be more focused on in society that can lead to compromise and to lead to more peace and, and peaceful coexistence between people of religious beliefs or none at all and um, LGBTQ communities and all sorts of other third parties as well. And that's that's really something that I think is normatively worth pursuing. And some of the questions that I talk about that we could be asking in this case is, um, Number one, is the harm worth it? Is there a lot of good that comes from this harm? Uh, for example, we often think about the benefits that flow to society of protecting freedom of speech, even though it's a really costly right. And, and other countries don't do it that way. The United States is kind of unique in that we've said, look, we just think that there's so many social benefits that come from protecting speech, uh, even if it's really offensive and awful that that we're willing to do that. Um, but then I don't think you can stop there. I think it's important to ask about, are there ways, though, that maybe we have legal frameworks that are sort of causing conflicts between religious folks 
or other third parties that we could avoid. That if we if we changed our legal frameworks or institutions, that maybe those conflicts don't even need to arise to begin with. And um, and then also, even if harm, say for something like freedom of speech or, or religious freedom, even if those are good deals for society, sometimes harm might be disproportionately falling on certain groups. And are there things that government can do to try and mitigate the the way in which harm might be disproportionately falling on third party? And And one example I think that is interesting to think about in this context is with the Hobby Lobby debate and concern about harm that was befalling employees if they weren't able to access um, seamless or cost-free contraception. One of the questions I think is valuable to think about in that context is, okay, well, how can we provide protections for religious people, but still protect those employees um, and those interests that are at stake and that access so that then we can mitigate harm on both sides of the scale. Um, And there's an interesting proposal from HHS in June of last year for example, that would expand the definition of low-income family under Title VII to include any woman who was unable to obtain cert- certain family planning services under employer-sponsored health insurance policies due to their employer's religious beliefs or moral convictions. Now, that's just a proposed rule. I'm not saying that's the be-all and end-all of the solution. But I think if more people on both sides of the debate were focusing on these sorts of solutions, how do we find ways to, to mitigate harm? How do we find ways to avoid avoidable conflicts? Those are conversations that I think would be really productive for our country and and for people on both sides of the of these disputes and on both sides of the scale. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Stephanie. It's been a real pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed visiting with you. Plus, Antibiotic has antibiotic ointment directly on the pad. It delivers protection against infection in one simple step. Effective, convenient, and from the brand you trust. 